everyone, welcome back to a mini in-between episode. Well, first, let's announce our giveaway winners for the past two weeks. So we were giving away the Dolby Dimension headphones two weeks ago, and we have two winners. The first one is Vlada from New York. I hope I said your name right. Congrats, congrats. And then we have Cynthia from Michigan. So they both won the Dolby Dimension headphones, which, which are, are awesome. awesome. Yep. And we're going to be sending those out this week. And then we were giving away three of the chili pads last week. And so we have Julie from Maine, Alfred from Texas, and James from California. And if your name is not Julie, Alfred, James, Vlada, or Cynthia, that's a bummer. I'm sorry, but, but that's why we're doing multiple giveaways every single week, in fact. And we have a brand new one to announce. So, Steph, what's the new giveaway? Yep. So this week we're giving away two of the Misfit Vapor smartwatches. So we're you know partnering with Beta, as you guys have probably heard in the past few weeks. And we're highlighting some of the best tech gear products that's out there right now. So this week, the Misfit Vapor 2. Yeah. And when I saw this watch, I didn't know anything about it. You were doing the unboxing. You checked it out. And what type of things does it do? Because it looks like it tracks just about everything or as much as you want to. Yep. So it does health tracking. It has a GPS on there so you can see where you're at. It has a lot of smart suggestions, which are really nice. So when you're doing the unboxing of the watch, you can kind of go through each screen to see the functionalities, which are really nice. Because I feel like a lot of times with these smartwatches, there's a lot of... They're hard to get set up. Yeah, super hard to get set up. A lot of features that you don't even know existed until you read about it. So the smart suggestion feature was just cool because you swipe through and it's like, here's your step count. Here's your health metrics. Here's notifications and, you know, from your text, your calendar invite, all that throughout the day. Here's the weather. So really cool. And also I liked it because it has different band sizes where, you know, my wrist is pretty small and usually things don't fit my wrist. And this is just perfect because it was a nice fit, very clean, sleek and small. So we're giving away two of these smartwatches. If you go to mission.org slash giveaway, you can enter to win and get more entries by referring friends. And we'll see you there. Yes. And all your friends that you refer are going to get are world class or as I just read on Twitter, there's we're getting some hate mail about the newsletter, but we're also we've never got more likes before. So we, I think this is a good what sign. What hate mail are you talking about? I just got some. Uh, just got some. Really? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Though. Should we call them out? It made me smile. What's no, their name? No, no, no I, already, I already did. Um, no, we'll, we'll have a special segment for hate mail later. But uh, yeah, so you'll get that newsletter when you sign up. You'll get uh, entries into the giveaway and you can get more by referring friends. So sign up. You can win a Vapor 2. Uh, which has everything from heart rate monitoring, a built-in GPS, and an NFC chip for contactless payments. That's pretty cool. Sign up to win. And now, on to the show. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Lisa Wentz. Lisa is an author, voice coach, and motivational speaker. She recently published her first book, Grace Under Pressure, a masterclass in public speaking. In addition to her writing, Lisa has taught public speaking to executives and leaders at Salesforce, Oracle, Fitbit, and many others. She is also the founder of the San Francisco Voice Center, which provides a place for business leaders of all levels to practice and master public speaking and articulation. In today's episode, Chad and Lisa sit down to discuss the various experiences that can shape one's ability to speak and articulate clearly. Lisa also shares a few practices for how to overcome any speaking inhibitions you may be harboring today. Stay tuned for more from Lisa Wentz. Lisa, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Your book, Grace Under Pressure, is uh, is it out yet? Yeah. Okay. It was released April 30th in the United States and June 9th in the UK. So I have it in front of me. Admittedly, I've only read half, but what I have read and the exercises in the book are awesome. So thanks for sharing those. I am somebody who needs to work on my voice, as we all do. And uh, so, yeah, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. So, Lisa, how'd you get started with your work? Where, where are you from and where did this interest come from in helping people communicate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm from Davis, California, originally. I've lived in San Francisco for about 20 years. And the interest in helping people came when, in this context anyway, came when I was in graduate school. So I was an actress from the time I was 20 to 30 and a well-trained actress And um, I started teaching acting and voice and speech and Alexander Technique in drama conservatories. And I wanted to go a little bit deeper with my knowledge with voice and speech. So I uh, decided to get a master's degree in voice and speech pedagogy at the uh, University of London Central School of Speech and Drama, which is the epicenter for that kind of work. Hmm. And while I was there living in London, I went into the knowledge transfer department And started to work with immigrants and I started to work with various people that you would consider non-performers, you know, non-actors. I did my master's degree thesis in voice, speech, and body language and how it affects juries Hmm. and how the educational institutions, you know, law schools could use more voice and speech training in their advocacy training programs. That's fascinating, Um, by the way. Can we maybe tell a story or two about that? Oh, sure. So I'm fascinated by the idea of how do you make uh, and create juries that are more fair, right? As, as we all are. How do we create more justice in our world? Are there applications there for, the, for this or how do you view that work? So what I'm what I was doing and what I do is, you know, in terms of training lawyers or training um, recent graduates. Sure. It, not quite the same as dealing directly with a jury. Right. So what I've been dealing with or was dealing with at the time was. You know, how can a lawyer make their argument more persuasive when they're fighting the good fight? I don't, right. I've never worked with somebody who I thought was representing somebody who's guilty. Having said that, we all deserve a lawyer no matter what. I believe in sure. the Constitution, yeah. don't get me wrong. But I was more interested in, Eng- in England, a little different from the United States. Once you graduate law school, you have one year to get pupillage at a, a law firm which we would consider in this country internship or something like that, right? And if you do not do that within that first year, you will never be a barrister. That's how hard it is, how competitive it is. Mm. And I found that really interesting because here in law schools, they don't offer the training required. It's a sink or swim issue. If you're Mm -hmm. a good public speaker, then you'll probably become a barrister. And if not, too bad. So that's kind of where I was coming from. You know, how can we enrich advocacy programs to help the students and to help the graduates and all of that. I do have an interesting story for you if you want to hear it in I'd terms of one to. of the people that I worked with. Yeah. Uh, I started to work with a few people from the Queen's Council in London and uh, someone found out that and they contacted me. Her name is Helen and she had graduated from law school. She was about 10 months into that year. Down to the wire. And she had been rejected by everyone. She had two law firms left and they were the two biggest law firms in London. So she called me up and I said, yes, I will work with you. Absolutely. And what I noticed right off the bat was first, she was highly intelligent, Mm -hmm. highly qualified, 
but she had a forward lisp and that wasn't so much the issue. The issue was, because I asked her, you know, can you give me an opening argument so we can record it, I can listen to it and evaluate it. The issue was because of that lisp, she felt self-conscious and kept pushing and overdoing it and overfighting and, you know, being trying to be too persuasive to the point of bossiness. Sure. Right. So that overcompensating for what she felt was a little bit of uh, imperfection mm. was really what was getting in her way. Right. And it was really getting in her way in terms of establishing rapport, which a lawyer has to do right away with a client, with their law firm, with juries mm-hmm. and so on. So that's what we worked on. I didn't I gave her some articulation exercises, you know, just to make sure she was crisp, clear ish. Fine. Uh, but really, we worked on the use of language, building rapport um, the imagery behind the words she was using, persuasiveness, and that umbrella of work. And we had two sessions together and she got offers from the two law firms and picked the one she wanted. That's awesome. Yeah, I was very happy to help her. So when you're training someone like that, is it relatively the same format each time? I mean, obviously there's going to be customization, um, mm-hmm. but I'd be curious to know what is the intake process like and what does it look like when you actually work with a client over an extended period of time? Because that sounds like it was maybe... Was it uh, a two-month coaching or consulting arrangement or was it no, a little bit longer? No, it was two sessions. Oh, two sessions. Wow. Yeah. That, that's incredible. So is that sometimes all it takes for an individual to get over the first really big stumbling block maybe? That's a really great question. And the answer is it depends on the person. It right. depends on what they're bringing in to the room. Most coaches that I know, my most of my colleagues... Uh, that are public speaking coaches will deal with sort of what I put into the last part of the book, which is directorial advice, shaping the delivery of the speech or the talk or in lawyer's case, an argument. But what I'm dealing with is whatever walks in the room. If there's something in the way of my client reaching their goals, we're going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. If it's outside of my wheelhouse, then I might refer them out to someone else. So outside of my wheelhouse would be something like, damage to the vocal folds they may may need to see an ear nose and throat doctor and just to make sure that there's nothing you know uh in the way on a medical level Mm. but there are times where more often than than i think most people would guess people walking into my office with very big obstacles uh that they've held on to for a long time that have created a lot of anxiety for them and that could be anyone from a manager a vp executive a c-level um, nonprofit speakers, many people will have some negative influences at some point in their life, and that increases their stage fright or their anxiety. And yes, I can teach them voice and speech techniques. I can help them build breath capacity and enrich their voice and articulation and all the physical aspects of voice and speech training. That applies to everybody. I can help them shape speeches and deliver. And like I said before, use of language and how that affects people mm-hmm. and your listeners. But that first thing, if it's still in the way, right? if something's triggering you, you can prepare all you want. If that anxiety, whatever's provoking the anxiety comes into the room, sure, it's going to override everything else, oftentimes. So if somebody walks into the room and they say something like, I have a debilitating inner critic, mm-hmm. then I'm going to help them remove it. If they say I have imposter syndrome or... Most people don't say that deliberately or directly. <laughs> right. They'll they'll hint at it, and then I'll have to pull back the layers and see what's there. Right. And then we'll agree on what we're going to work on. So it sounds like a process of exploration with them and yeah. exploring whatever the client feels comfortable exploring. Because I think a lot of these blocks and challenges with public speaking, they start early on, right? 
because oftentimes we hear a critic early on when we're trying to speak or when we're trying to learn something new or take a risk in front of a class or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are some common experiences that people have when they're younger or in school that you feel inhibit their ability later on to maybe articulate themselves or get comfortable speaking in public? Right. So some negative messaging can happen in school in various forms. Um, You know, we come in contact with so many teachers. Right. When you have one that can be really negative or critical, it can really affect you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it depends, of course, also on your home life and how much other support you have, whether or not you have a little bullying going on in school or something like that. But, you know, I've met some highly intelligent, successful people who have said to me, yeah, there's one person in the book that I wrote about, which you probably read about, who in prep school had a teacher tell him, you are stupid and you're never going to be smart. Sit down just for answering a question. And to me, that's 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 a bad teacher. That's a situation where the teacher was wrong. But as a young person and the younger we are, the more we do this, we absorb that kind of messaging and hold on to it because we think or we're trained to think that people who are in positions of authority are always right. That you're learning from the teacher. So Mm -hmm. they must be right. And the younger you are, of course, the more likely you're going to absorb those kinds of negative messaging. And um, so what ends up happening is then let's say you start to go through your career you're building your skill set, you might be excelling, but the basics of stage fright will start to occur for most people. Most people get a little nervous, at least right at some point in on. their yeah, sure. at some point in their career. And when I say stage fright, I want to define that if that's all right. Please. My definition of stage fright is basically just these two things. An unrealistic expectation for perfection coupled with a fear of judgment. Mm-hmm. And so if you have that neg- a negative experience from childhood or from your teens or even early 20s, that fear of judgment becomes bigger. And I think what happens is that we don't really put the puzzle pieces together. We don't always realize, oh, maybe this stems from something that I went through, mm-hmm. you know, because usually we bury that, we move on, we're busy, we're in school, we're doing our work, we're doing our life. Sure. Um, and we don't really tie the dots together or connect the dots. And so, yes, sometimes for me, the initial session is about helping people connect the dots, work on whatever is in the way in terms of an obstacle. And then we go into the physical aspects of voice and speech training and then delivery technique. For anyone out there that's listening right now, is there any advice that you might have for them? Because I know in my own head, a lot of memories in the past where I've had negative experiences or something like that, uh, they're, they're surfacing. Is there mm-hmm. a good way to kind of deal with them as they surface? Would you recommend journaling? Uh, would you recommend exploring or talking through them with someone else? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you recommend for that? Sure. I think if there's a particular thing that's bothering you, kind of bugging you each time you go to speak or even even throughout life, journaling is a great way to do it. I would say take the journal a step further and get it out verbally. Right. Because the process of public speaking, uh, and I say that even in a meeting, you're pub- it's public, sure. you're speaking, um, is one that is physical. Mm-hmm. Try to get it out physically. And you can record yourself or you can tell a trusted friend what you, what's going on internally. And these are the thoughts that come up when I, when I go to speak at the podium or, you know, whatever it is, that will help get it out of the subconscious, more into the conscious sphere where you can start to just let go of it. And and it's far less intimidating too when it's out and somebody listens and says, that's it. That's what was stopping you or that's what was so bad. And yeah, it's yeah. about applying a part of it is about applying logic mm-hmm. because usually the inner voice that's an inner critic is not logical. Right. 
fear-based and yeah. uh, trauma-based or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, exactly. So I always try to start simple logic, apply simple logic first. And, and you have a training and experience in psychology. I would be interested to talk about that some more. I think psychology is a fascinating field. And the more I learn about life and business, the more I want to learn about psychology so mm-hmm. I can keep improving myself. Where did your interest in psychology come from and how does it apply to public speaking? Uh, my interest came, and I this is also in the book, so I, I guess I can say it. Uh, I, there's some mental illness in my family. My mother had a histrionic personality disorder, and my father had PTSD. And that there was, is, in, sorry, not didn't mean to cut you off, but there is in my family as well. So right, oh, okay. right there with you. Yeah, so that's where the interest, my wanting to understand, you know, how these illnesses develop, what people can do with them, and there was a lot of repetitive trauma within the family units. And the physiological effects of of the various types of trauma are pretty obvious, I mm-hmm. think, in my family. And I really wanted to know when I was younger, how to unravel those effects? How do I unravel what had happened to me? And how can I help my brothers and sisters? So that's initially where my interest came from. So I left home when I was 13 because I had realized that it was not a healthy place for me. I petitioned the state of California to take me into protective custody, which took a year, and I sought out a therapist. So I was pretty young, started seeing a therapist, and again, with that desire to sort of unravel and to to understand um, things a little bit deeper. So that's where my interest started. And then when I went into school, meaning college, I read a lot of books first and foremost in my teen years, and then wanted I thought I would become a psychologist because it did interest me. A life-changing experience happened when I was 19 and I shifted gears completely and went from thinking oh I'd like to maybe become a psychologist to really wanting to be in and the creative world. Now having said that there are lots of places that are very very creative. It doesn't necessarily mean arts, but for me it was performing arts and that's mm-hmm. where my the catalyst for acting came. Would you mind sharing that experience maybe or a, sure, a little I'm bit fine about with your, that. I just your, don't know how to how to you want to go. Yeah. So what had happened was my brother Matthew became sick. Uh he um eventually would die of cancer of the lymph nodes and he was maybe 5 years older than me. He really needed someone to take care of him. So I left school. I rented a house with a friend and spent a lot of time taking care of my brother in his last year of life. And he said to me, you know, Lisa, you keep saying you want to be a psychologist. You keep studying this. But if you don't go into acting, if you don't become an actress, you're always going to regret it. Oh, wow. Um, so that was that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Th- thanks for sharing that. I, sure. Uh, yeah. I always respect hearing stories about people who uh, go out of their way to care for family members that are hurting. So that's uh, that's really special. Um how did he know to say that? Obviously, he knew you well, uh, but oh, yeah. ha- had you been, obviously, you're sharing a lot with him. How how was your relationship? And because I, I feel like relationships like that are vital to life when we yeah. have somebody that loves us, that challenges us like that. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about your relationship with him and sure. how that inspiration helped you do the work that you're doing today? Sure. So his name is Matthew. Matthew was a dancer, very physical person. Uh, the exact opposite of me, very physically coordinated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he and I were very close. I have nine older brothers and sisters. 
seven of them boys and Matthew was homosexual and didn't really connect with my sort of macho football playing boxing brothers. They right. just didn't. And I was the youngest. And here he had this little sister that he could teach to dance and he could dress up <laughs> and he could, you know, play with. And so we really, we really, really bonded and really liked each other. We had a lot of fun together uh, growing up. And so, yes, we were, we were each other's confidant, so to speak, you know. And that's how that relationship developed and blossomed and whatnot. So, yes, we told each other quite a few things. And I it, I think it was very obvious. I always wanted to be an actor when I was a little kid. What was happening to me is that as I was becoming, when, once I became a teenager, I started to think more realistically about finances and security and stability and the kinds of things that you start thinking about when you start thinking about college and what where am I really going to go with this? And so I was discussing that with him. And that's what his response was. And now since he was a dancer before he got sick, there was times, a couple of profound times, things that happened. One time was uh, one thing he said to me when he finally came to acceptance, uh, because for the first several months after I moved back up to Northern California, because I wasn't living, like I said, with my family, I was living in Southern California I moved back up and he was telling me that he still was holding out hope that he was going to live, um, that the cancer wouldn't win. And at one point he finally came to acceptance and he said, Lisa, and this is how he came to acceptance, Lisa, they've told me that even if I get better, I'll never be able to dance because my legs are so damaged. And I, I remember saying, Matt, if I could give you my legs, I would give you my legs. And I and I also said, because I'm not using them for what I want. And then that was when he said, you need to become an actor, because that's what you want. Moments like that, I can I can only listen. I was not, you know, I was not I was not there, but yeah, thank you for sharing. Sure. Lisa, so how do you get beyond something like that? That's that's what I, I would be really curious to know because I know in my own past when I've uh, dealt with loss or I was in the military and I lost uh, uh, friends that I, I served with at, um, after we got home and it's just you know a, a tragic, unnecessary thing. And I know how I got beyond it, but I'm always curious to hear stories from others about how they got past those uh, moments of hurt or moments of loss or you know, you know, moments when you're wondering, like, I could have done more or should I have done more? And, uh, you know, all those questions run through your head. So how did you get past that and get to a place where you were acting, coaching, teaching and, and creating? Hmm. It's an interesting question. I mean, getting past or getting through the loss of a loved one is hard. Absolutely. And it, yeah, it wasn't easy. It took me a while. I did allow myself to go through whatever stage I was going through. And because I did know a bit about psychology, I realized that the stages of death are very similar to the stages of grief. There's anger, there's denial, there's uh, depression, there's these things, and the feelings come and go and you can't control them. They're just popping up when they want to. So I allowed myself to just experience that. You know, I knew I wasn't going to have control over how I was feeling for a while. And then, so that was for some months, and then uh, decided to move to San Francisco, study acting, and working and I started working in a theater pretty right away really and I still think about Matt of course and I still miss him and there's a part of me that thinks you'll 
I don't know that I'll ever fully get over that loss. You know, he's still clearly still there with me a little bit. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure if it does. Yeah, I I think so. So for anyone out there that's uh, that's listening and they're thinking about their own journey, a lot of people that listen to us are interested in creative work. They're interested mm-hmm. in finding new ways to express themselves or uh, find new ways to better articulate what they want and what they mean. When we find ourselves in a position where we feel like life isn't going the way we want, our career, our job isn't going the way we want, but we know it's because we're not asking for what we want. What's a good game plan there? What, what do you recommend for the people who feel like they know what they want, but sometimes they just get scared of asking for it? Mm-hmm. From the perspective of a coach, mm-hmm. for me, I would say to take some time. If you can take the time, get a little bit of solitude. Again, physicalizing things can be great. Taking a great hike, a great run clear the head a bit, clear the cobwebs a bit, especially if you're somebody who's overworked. And think about, you know, doing things that inspire you, listening to things that inspire you, doing what you think is the safe choice. Um, Jim Carrey, in his commencement address, not too long ago, maybe in the last five years, he did a really great commencement speech. I don't know if you've heard it. I think I've seen the club. Yeah, but he talks about how his father decided to play it safe and become an accountant, no, I think. Right, didn't want to pursue comedy or... Yeah, and, and he failed. And his point is, you could choose to play it safe, you could still fail. So why not go after what you really want? Sure. So I think that finding those kinds of uh, examples through either through speeches, celebrity, personal experiences, people you know, to remind yourself, you know, you've only got so much time on this planet. Sure. You might as well go after it. And you there's know? a lot of wisdom out there from people who have gone through yeah. it or made the mistakes that you yeah. can yeah, learn from. There's also one other thing I would suggest. There's a exercise in the book uh, about removing the inner critic. I put two in there that relate to the inner critic. One of them is called a conversation where you sort of compartmentalize the major parts of your personality. Hmm. So maybe you look at your main personality at like right now I'm front Lisa or adult Lisa and I make decisions from a certain place. Mm. And then I have a part of myself that's the more creative side that still paints and draws and does things in solitude, which sometimes my decision-making is from a little different place there. Sure. And then I could go on and on and list different sides of who I am. You know, uh, We're not one-dimensional creatures. Most of us are very complicated. To take that step back and really think about what this side of my personality wants. What does this side of my personality want? And have either a conversation with yourself or write it out and decide, you know, the validity of those desires and whether or not you can make uh, good compromises between the sides. The one side that says, no, I really do need to work 70 hours a week and make this much money because I have to do this for my career and blah, blah, blah. But there's another side that's saying, I need to get physical exercise. I need to clear my head. I need to do something creative and then bargain between the the personalities ask for time to make sure that you're giving each part of yourself who you are some time and some fulfillment and you're more likely in my experience to make much better decisions when you do that or even if you think about uh, Steve Jobs thinking of commencement speeches when he talks about how he was interested in calligraphy and he was interested in really creative aspects and art and whatnot in college and would sit in on classes and that obviously ended up influencing him and had he never given himself that time to do that, would he have been as successful? Probably not, you know? 
I think that's a fascinating exercise because I think oftentimes we have, we think we have to be the same person everywhere we go. That's pretty exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's uh, that's hard to keep up and not necessarily like the same person. I think what I mean is breaking or compartmentalizing. Do you feel like that allows us to take on bigger challenges when we start to compartmentalize our life and realize this is just work? It doesn't define who I'm going to be when I go home and create tonight, or this is me hiking or going to the gym or training really hard and I can be a certain type of person there. But when I come home, I need to maybe adjust that a little bit. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Acknowledge the different parts of yourself that have different needs. Take the, t- when I say compartmentalize, bring them apart a little bit, like really try to separate them so you understand gotcha. yourself better. Then bring them all back together in the end. And so that you're making decisions from a much more solid place. Where you've examined your wants and needs in each of those yeah. compartments. And you, I guess that's important too, because often we have unrealistic wants or needs that uh, and sometimes they're not, right? Sometimes yeah. we maybe are not even asking for um, what we should be asking for. Maybe we're underselling ourselves. So that's a fascinating exercise. And you mentioned getting out, getting some exercise. I think our physiology is so mm-hmm. important. Uh, there's a couple simple exercises in the book, like you know, having a mirror to check your posture. I think that's a great one. So I, I can, in the past, I've fallen into the trap of using a mirror for to judge all the wrong things, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be interested to hear from you about how we can use some mirrors and some other things to start to practice speaking more or how can we use those things to yeah do these exercises that are in your book Mm -hmm. yeah mirrors and recording devices are great friends and great tools i think when you look if let's say you're doing that exercise where you're looking in the mirror you're kind of checking your posture first and foremost you want to just observe and don't try to change anything right away because you might be holding tension in a particular spot right. in your body. And then trying to change it quickly means you'll just move the tension to another part of your body. So it's not necessarily that effective, but more so it's an observation exercise and really observe how you breathe again without having to change anything right away. When we have strength in our voice, that strength typically comes from, at least in part, some of its training, but part of it is this, your breathing. If you don't have enough breath to support the amount of speaking you're doing, then your voice is going to get tired. The resonance will start to to wade away and you'll start speaking like this or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So if you're looking in a mirror, you can really see, is my belly moving as I breathe in? Is my rib cage towards the bottom moving? Or am I just pulling up in my shoulders, which does nothing for breathing, you know? So you can, you yes, I agree. Absolutely. You can use some tools to as as friends and the recording devices you know when you record yourself and you listen back you know does your voice sound more resonance resonant after you've done a resonance exercise or a breath exercise um does that work for you do you want it to sound slightly different i mean these are things that you can judge and play with or articulation exercises important to use these tools though to help you grow and to use healthy critiquing not criticizing and there's an important difference between the two. Would you mind sharing an example of the difference between the two? Sure, absolutely. So criticizing is something like, let's say you walk away from giving a speech and you say, okay, that was terrible. I'm a fraud. I flubbed up that middle part. I don't know what I'm doing. Those kinds of thoughts, these are things that people say to me in my office. So they obviously exist. Um, Looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I look terrible. I don't know how to do this. Um, You know, things that basically Mm -hmm. you're criticizing yourself which gives you nothing to grow from. It gives you no starting point. You're just, just taking stopping. away all your power. Yeah, and you're stopping from yourself from doing anything. Whereas if you're critiquing and saying, okay, 
you've walked away from the podium and you're thinking, okay, that middle part, I said too much because I need to just keep that part more simple. Or the introduction was a little too long. Okay, next time I'm going to cut it. That gives you something to do with the information. So critiquing is healthy. It's much more tangible. Whereas the the first thing is kind of a, that's just not useful at all. You're not going to improve if that's your, no. if after you do anything, you're just saying that was horrible. That's uh yeah, that you have of, no way to improve. Exactly. Yeah. That type of perfectionism can really creep into work, I think. So mm. are, are there any ideas you have for encountering perfectionism and where, where's the balance there? Because obviously we live in uh, a pretty hyper competitive business world where something close to perfection is the only thing that's going to uh, keep a business going sometimes. How how do you fall in, in that camp and how do we avoid the trap of perfectionism but still do great work? Right. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that people who work really hard, and I mean acknowledge this for yourself, I've worked really hard, I am a bit of a perfectionist, and I've gotten rewarded from that. And what ends up happening when you've been rewarded for being a really hard worker or being a perfectionist is sometimes you keep going and keep going and keep going and then you put too much pressure on yourself. So then the question is, like I said, acknowledge first, okay, this is true. I've benefited from this. But where does when does it get to the point where I'm starting to compromise myself? Right, when I start getting diminishing get, returns from yes, this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or I start criticizing myself or I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not putting the oxygen mask on myself first. When is this becoming, you know, just creating way too much tension bodily, mm. bodily and mentally? I mean, we're mental, physical creatures. Humans are. So when we have mental tension, it'll translate physically and vice versa. Um, So I think that's an important step for people who are feeling a little bit overworked and whatnot. And, you know, some of my clients will say things like, I just have to get through this push this month, or I just have to get through this product launch, or I just have to, you know, to wait until my IPO is over, (laughs) and then I can take a vacation. You can still find little ways to take care of yourself, even if you are in a very literal tough time, you know. That's when you might need the littlest uh, bit of self-care just to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I told um, a founder not too long ago, who wasn't getting any sleep, who was very stressed out to go to Baker Beach, take a walk one morning, just do 30 minutes. I made him promise me he would do 30 minutes. And he looked like a completely different person the next day. <laughs> his eyes were bright. His head was clear. He said, I, and he was so happy about it. He said, I even saw dolphins out there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes just even a little bit, little bits of breaks can be helpful. And I think sometimes getting permission from a trusted advisor is yeah. what we need because I know personally, I will not give myself, or I do now, I'm getting much better at that. But in the past, I've not given myself any break. And it's uh, something that you just can't do. It's not sustainable. And so I had to, I basically sought out permission, as silly as that sounds. But once I got permission from people I loved who said, yeah, we don't know why you do it either. Like (laughs) There's no, it's not helping you. It's not helping us. Nobody appreciates it. uh, And you don't appreciate it because you're not happy. So yeah, I think that asking for feedback from others is, is so, so important to figure out, kind of triangulate where we're at because we can't really see ourselves all the time. Are there any tips you have for maybe getting feedback if you if you don't have a coach, if you don't have a trusted advisor, maybe you have friends and family that are supportive. Are there some ways that you recommend clients talk to their friends and family about this stuff? Or do you generally say, no, don't, don't talk to your friends and family about this? When you say this stuff, do you mean the tendency to overwork or do you mean just public speaking or what? Which I think parts? M- mainly public speaking. Yeah. yeah. In terms of improving your presentations and how you present yourself and speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that practice is a great thing for everyone. And if you can get an audience, if you can 
if you've got a speech coming up or some kind of pitch or something like that, practice it out, get in front of audiences if you can. As far as getting feedback from them, though, that one can be tricky because if you're getting different types of feedback from different people, then that sometimes can be a little overwhelming or you're not sure which one to take and which one not to take. And oftentimes I'll hear people say things that lead me to believe, okay, so that friend or colleague saw that something was off, but they didn't really know how to fix it. Yeah. So then they'll just make a random suggestion yeah. and that may not be the key. But the more I think the individual who's giving the speech can practice and and get themselves up in front of the podium or on the stage or whatever, your internal, your intuition will usually tell you. Right. You know, okay. It, and if you can record it, then yeah. you can listen to it back and not just hear what you think you said, <laughs> but what you actually said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, always listen with the critiquing in mind, not criticizing. Um, and I think from there, I think that's good. So your work is primarily in San Francisco, right? Yeah, that's where my office is. And that's where I see my private clients typically. What's your take on the Bay Area right now? Because I wouldn't say we're in a tech bubble yet, but we're in a uh, world that cares a lot about tech, high finance. What do you think of the Bay Area? Where is it going? Is it going in a good direction? I would be curious to get your take on that. It's a Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And I know a lot of people are talking about this right now because it's a careful question. It's one we care about. You know, I my office is at Fifth and Market, and over the last five years or so, the tenderloin seems to be expanding, not decreasing. We're seeing more and more homelessness, a lot of very sad sights, and it's going very much into the touristy areas of, of San Francisco, which could be hard for businesses. I think that the direction that can't continue to keep growing, that it has to be dealt with. Agreed. And we see efforts being made. We see Benioff trying to put money into building for homeless uh, housing and different programs and Salesforce really supporting that and some other companies supporting it. We see some of the board of uh, supervisors supporting trying to solve the uh, homelessness crisis. Yeah. So my thought on that is that it can't keep growing. We've we've got to do something about it. And I would feel like we're resourced enough to do it. We have a huge bu budget in San Francisco, you know. So yes, the, while we see the homelessness growing, problem growing, we also see more and more and more tech coming into San Francisco and certainly right around my office. I, I have mixed feelings about this. I think first and foremost, people go where the work is, where their work is. If you're an actor, you're going to move to LA or New York. If you are a fisherman, you're going to live by the sea. That's sure. the way this works. Yep. If you're in the tech industry, you're going to come to the Bay Area. You're going to go to Austin, maybe, or a couple of these other places. So I don't have any negative feelings towards the people that are moving in. But in order to keep a diverse, balanced city and a city that has been known for being for that, for mm. having diversity and known for having an artist community, I think that the people who are running the city have to do a little bit more. In that area, Just I agree. I think it's uh, it's hard to have a thriving artistic community if the rent is as as high as it is. I think that's mm -hmm. pr a pretty tough uh, challenge to to fight there. So, Lisa, when you were writing Grace Under Pressure, mm -hmm. what was the earliest draft, or what were the uh, origins of the book? Was it just uh, copious notes and articles and essays that you'd written over a long time that you put together and polished and and reworked, or what was the genesis like of the book? Oh, that's a interesting question for me because I tend to be somebody who lives very much in my head. So it was really in my head. <laughs> I wasn't writing anything down. I thought about writing it for about three years on and off. 
And the actual physical sitting down and writing it took about a year. And I had help, of course, from editors and, and uh, consultant and things like that. But because so much, of it, so much of it was already shaped in my head by the time I sat down to start writing, the writing went a little faster than I think the average person who, you know, it's just different techniques for different people. Was it cathartic uh, writing the book or wh- how would you describe completing it? Was it, there a great sense of like relief, accomplishment or excitement or what was that like? I look forward to that day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, what's funny about it is that I I am a bit of a worker too. So even though the book was released in April, at the end of April, yes, at the launch party in San Francisco, I did feel happy. I felt I had accomplished something. I felt um, that I'm contributing to the field and all those feelings but I'm still a little bit in work mode. I'm still a little writing articles and doing these podcasts and doing some speaking engagements. And so it, I, don't, I don't know that I have a real sense of having something done. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's still a living, breathing thing at this stage. That's good, though. I think things that are living and breathing tend to, you never know what direction they're going to evolve into. So that's uh, that's awesome. Lisa, I'd be curious, too, to hear about what are your inspirations or role models? So there's a, a, there are a lot of great quotes in this book from mm-hmm. Oliver Wendell Holmes and just all kinds of uh, great speakers, thinkers, and leaders. Are there any inspirations that really uh, inspire you to do your work? To do my work, um, I think probably my teachers, Cicely Berry, who died, I think, last year, uh, was head of voice at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And being head of voice and text for a company like that means that you are just as important, if not more important, than the artistic director. And if you go into the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon, you'll see that. The lobby has quite a lot of her in it and one small picture of the artistic <laughs> director. Yeah. Um, and she was an inspiring person to work with. And I work similarly in the sense that I work very physically and she's known for sort of throwing people around the stage and that kind of thing well into her 80s. Uh, she was quite inspiring to work with Katerina Moriadis, who was the head of voice and speech at the Royal, sorry, Royal Central School, where I went to school, was very inspiring because her love of the work was contagious and she taught me quite a bit. But in terms of role models or people I feel in- inspired by just out in the world, Jane Goodall is somebody who really inspires me. She's not talked about quite that much when it comes to public speaking and whatnot, but she's one of my favorite speakers. She is absolutely 100% herself. She is authentic and she is a has a quieter voice, a softer voice, and she's a petite woman. And now she's, you know, getting into her twilight years and in, in life. And I use her as an example as a, as a very strong, grounded voice in not just her work, but the world. And the reason I often refer to her to women when they ask me is because there are some women who believe, oh, I've got to lower my voice. I've got to lower my pitch. I've got to compete with men. I've got to be a bigger presence on stage and whatnot. You really just need to be who you are. Mm -hmm. That's what the authenticity is, right? So she's a great example of a very powerful person who has a high, higher pitched voice and a tiny woman. Authenticity never goes out of style. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Lisa, thank you for being so generous with your time. This was a sure. pleasure. I, I would love to leave our listeners with maybe one final story about what is possible. So for anyone out there that's listening, that's maybe fearful of public speaking, their palms are getting sweaty just thinking about it or talking about it right now. What story would you offer them for 
maybe a person that went from nothing to speaking all the time and thinking that it was the easiest thing in the world. Are there any success stories like that? Um, are there any of your favorite client stories that, you know, maybe there's one that you could leave us with? Hmm. Oh my gosh, what a big question. Yeah, actually, there, there's plenty in terms of uh, examples, but the one that's really striking me right now is not so much about public speaking, but speaking to teams. I had a CEO that came to me who felt crippled with anxiety whenever he had to do his team meetings and deliver any tiny bits of bad news. And the reason was because he felt too much responsibility uh, to take care of the people who worked for him. I don't think that this is a particularly common thing. This is not something I hear much mm. from CEOs, but I heard it from him and he was it was debilitating enough that he sought out a coach, me, and he thought, I'll have to do at least 10 to 20 sessions on this. This has been bothering me a very long time. And so he went from this intense anxiety where he would have to address his team, his voice would shake, he would start to get very sweaty. He would feel then, of course, embarrassed because he's the one you know, steering the ship and he's the leader and all that. And so I walked him through a couple sessions. We went through a couple sessions just on some basic voice and speech technique to start building his confidence a little bit more, dealing with the physiological responses to stress and anxiety so that he could rely on that technique no matter what was happening. And that's another thing. You can always rely on technique. If you get nothing else from this. Um, and then the last session, which was only four sessions, I had a team of actors that I knew. I gave them all... Uh, roles that to play within his company. He knew that we were going to do this. Sure. It wasn't a surprise. He had to deliver bad news. And I had each one of, they were great actors. I had each one of them have different ways of either attacking him. I love it. I had one woman break down. <laughs> she broke down <laughs> crying, yeah. saying, what do you mean? You're cutting my pay. I'm sending my kid to college. And, you know, so all of this. And he took all of these balls that were being thrown at him and he stayed within himself. He breathed. He applied logic. And he took none of it on. That's such great practice. Yeah. And he yeah. overcame in four sessions something that had been bothering him for months. I love it. So That's a great place to end this interview on. Lisa, we're going to have to have you back on. This was awesome. Grace Under Pressure is out now. A masterclass in public speaking. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.